This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. Last week, uh, is this on? It is on. Last week, when Greg was talking, he mentioned um, a test called the Harvard Implicit Bias. Is that what it was called, Greg? Or Implicit Association Test. Implicit Association. And and yesterday, I was talking to. Uh, I. I co-teach with others a chaplaincy course and the teachers of their course we were discussing what we'll do next year and that came up someone said well you know there's this thing we'd all heard of it we would all taken it and then one of the faculty said you know I have to say yeah and I don't mean to cause offense but I have to say this is a very white way of thinking. <laughs> Her background is she's half Mexican and half Native American Indian. And uh, she said, in particular, if I told my Native American Indian family about this, they'd laugh. You know? uh, And, and it set me thinking on uh, how inevitable it is that we reference the world according to our own experience, our own history, you know, that which has been formative for us, that which has been relevant. Um, and we talk about it, each of us, in our own language. No, we might use the same word, and then you you have your reference to that word, and I have my reference to that word. Uh, sometimes I think it's a wonder that we can actually communicate. <laughs> sometimes it seems like we're not doing a very good job at it either. Uh, I was thinking of the word, uh, what came up to mind was the word poverty. You know, I remember once, uh, I, I grew up in a country that had high unemployment, so we went to the country next door. I grew up in Ireland. We went to England to look for work. And I was in England looking for work. Hadn't eaten for several days, standing in line outside a building site, hoping to get hired. But I don't think of that as poverty. That was just uh, a temporary setback to, um, to what I was uh, about at that time. 
What I think of as poverty is an image I have when I was about eight years old. And my mother and I were sitting in our living room. And my mother was being interviewed by a charitable organization to see if she was really impoverished enough to be given a grant so that she could go and buy food at a store. And even at eight, I could feel the, the embarrassment. Essentially, this woman was saying, are you really poor? Are you really broke? And even at eight, I was thinking, no, we just put this on for a show. <laughs> and, uh, with kind of uh, resentment, with this, what this woman was putting my mother through in order to give her kind of not very significant amount of money. That's what I think of as poverty. You know, the system that sets up that kind of situation for people. You know, the uh, being embedded in that system and feeling like there's no way out a kind of uh, discouragement, hopelessness. So that was the word that came up thinking, hmm, what if each of us went around the room and said, what does the word poverty mean? Naomi, she had a nice husband, Michael. Uh, he's an artist, a videographer. But he does these kind of projects. And one of his projects was what he called the Hunger Project. And he went around and he asked people, oh, tell me about when you were hungry. And so they talked about... Uh, and, and then what he would do, would he's primarily a photographer, and he'd take a bunch of photographs, and then what he put on his exhibition, you'd see the photograph of the person, and you'd listen on headphones to their narrative. He said, what, what Michael would do is he'd, talk, he'd get about an hour's worth of audio, and then he'd, he'd uh, edit it down to about 10 minutes. Each of us has a history. What I want you to know uh, it takes quite a bit of 
for most of us, quite a bit of um, processing, courage, determination to get to what I want you to know. And of course, if we want to know, that really helps each of us um, come forth. And then when I was thinking of poverty and what I think of as economic oppression, I was thinking, oh, so there was Ireland and there was England, and of course England was a very military powerful country, so of course they oppressed the Irish, as seems to be the way of uh, world history up to this point. If you have a bigger army, you oppress anyone you can. Uh, And we were oppressed. Um, In the community I grew up in, uh, Northern Ireland, um, our our primary discrimination was uh, religion. Catholics and Protestants. The Catholics were the minority, so they were oppressed. That that also impacted socially, you know. You couldn't vote unless you owned poverty, or uh, unless you owned property. (laughs) And guess what? Many of those impoverished Catholics (laughs) didn't own property. So they had no they had no representation in what was supposed to be a democracy. And that went on and inspired by Martin Luther King's nonviolent uh, process of protesting, um, there were protest marches in favor of uh, the right to vote. And then there was also um, another social impact, which was in in terms of work. Work was scarce, so the the group in power, which was Protestant, uh, ensured that Protestants got jobs and Catholics didn't. So all that bore relevance for me when my friend said, and she's a lovely person, uh, Christina Fernandez, uh, worked her way up through the ranks until she was the CEO of a large um, uh, corporation in, in the healthcare industry. And is now retired and is devoting herself to engaging her Buddhist practice. 
I want you to know, I think of that as a white way of thinking. hadn't occurred to me until she said it. And she expanded it a little bit uh, in a charming, uh, actually humorous way. And I thought of those categories of uh, oppression that I personally experienced uh, and watched that environment that I grew up in, that society, uh, watched how protest. So those marchers, they decided they would march across Northern Ireland. It's not a very big place. And at one point, uh, it seemed like this was becoming a significant protest. So, um, at first of all, the police, uh, they thought, well, let's, let's batten charge them. So they drew out their batons, and they charged them, and they beat them. But they came back, the, next, the protest marchers came back the next day, and just kept marching. And then they thought, well, we need to take uh, harsher uh, steps to deter this uh, marching. And then there was a wonderful, uh, terrible, seemingly miscommunication. The army was called in. And, and the army commander said to the person who was in charge, I don't know what his rank was, colonel or whatever, he said, do whatever it takes to stop the march. And the commander in the field thought that was a coded way of saying, if you have to shoot them, shoot them. And so guess what? That's what he did. The marchers came along. This was a nonviolent protest. And he told the soldiers to open fire. And they did. And they shot, I forget how many. It wasn't a lot. Well, a single life's a lot. Maybe it's 15 or 20. Um, and it set in motion. Um, over 30 years of violence, 30 years of uh, riots, 30 years of turning uh, Belfast and some other cities in Northern Ireland into Catholic area, Protestant area. Yeah. Um, 30 years, and if you if you were the wrong denomination for that area, your life was in danger. So you had to move. Um, 30 years of bombing, 
30 years of murder, shootings. And then guess what? Catholics got the right to vote. So that's part of what I think of, or what my reference is when we talk about protest marches, I think. Uh-oh. Um. I certainly think, um, part of me thinks this is an expression of asking for justice. In my background, there was no racial divide. There was no uh, long history of these, uh, what's happened in the United States in the last 250 years. But there was oppression. Uh, and now there's a slow, often painful process of trying to put community back together. Soaring suicide rates substance abuse, um, mental illness, um, domestic violence. Realize, you know, that this is not uh, what most of you have experienced. But I don't say that's a definitive, or my experience is definitive. In one way, it's quite unique, you know. I mean, and then I left that environment, and very fortunately for me, um, I was able to leave, and very fortunate for me, I had one ingredient, well, I had several ingredients of support. Uh, while we were impoverished, we were community. You know, everybody was impoverished. When Bapo was speaking, he was saying, well, when I lived in southern India, we were all poor. But when I lived in Chicago, and everybody else was rich, and we were poor. That was really hurtful. Yeah. When you're one of many, you know, when, when you, we needed each other, that old Celtic uh, saying, you know, we shelter in each other, that was a practical necessity. We had community. 
Um, even though we were oppressed as a nation, we had national pride. We were not ashamed of being Irish. And we had spirituality. There was a hymn we used to sing in church. Faith of our fathers burning still in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. Sounds a little bit more like something you would sing as you went into war. But uh, we sang it in church. And I think of those values applying to us. You know, applying to us literally. You know. I've been very touched by the community meetings we've had. You know, where we um, took shelter in each other. To me, the feeling in the room was more important than... Um, the points we brought up. I was particularly uh, relieved when there was differences of opinion, but the connection in the room stayed solid. Uh, to my mind, this is how communication happens, you know. And that communication, when there's connection, that communication somehow um, heals. Somehow uh, we, we learn about each other. We learn, we expand each other's worldview. Like Christina saying, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but that's a very white way of thinking about things. When I go back to Northern Ireland, when I started to go back to Northern Ireland, you know, it was curious, you know, local boy went off, around the world, got into this weird Zen thing, and now he's back here. But they would also always preface, when they'd write newspaper articles about it, they'd always preface me by saying, from the lower falls. You know, because the lower, the falls road is the area in which I lived. And the lower falls was the kind of, uh, the intense, most militant part of the falls. It's a little bit like saying, can you imagine someone from that area went off and did all that? The same area produced a Nobel Prize winner and a president of Ireland.
So how we listen to each other, how we identify ourselves, and, and how we let that communication uh, expand us. One evening, Burke and I were sitting in the, uh, in the dining room, and we, we started to talk about uh, a Turkish poet, Nazim Hikmet. And, uh, and he was saying, oh, I said, and does anybody in Turkey actually uh, know of Nazim Hikmet? He says, oh, national hero among a certain category of people, socialists. And then we discovered that both his grandfather and my father were both imprisoned for being socialists. And that was... Uh, interesting commonality. What is it to be community? What is it to offer each other that kind of support in these times? No. I was saying to Greg, you know, we've had many community meetings where uh, Goyo and myself and Hakusho would sit up here and say, well, we don't exactly know what's going to happen next. And I suspect the meeting we're going to have tomorrow, something, that phrase will be repeated, maybe not in the same words, but that sentiment. We don't exactly know what's going to happen next. Uh, can it strengthen us as community? Or will we uh, in, in our upset, in our disappointment, in our anxiety, will we separate? I hope not. Uh, and then there's owning who we are. And when I say that we, I think of the we as um, these, this odd group of people which in this moment I would call, I don't mean this as exhaustively definitive, just one of the many ways we could describe who we are, Western Buddhist converts. Western Buddhist converts to Zen Buddhism, or to Zen. Um, 
each of us is a kind of radical. with maybe only one exception. Uh, it's not an environment we grew up in. Um, and yet something in us uh, made that shift. When I look back on myself, uh, well, the version of Christianity I grew up in uh, just for all the reasons I just described had uh, no appeal whatsoever to get away from it, to find something else to, to find a, a spiritual system that promoted tolerance uh, seemed pretty good to me And that common identity, to, to me, it holds two things. For one, it holds the bodhisattva vow. You know? Like in going back to Northern Ireland and seeing you know, when a community, when the society is torn into pieces, uh, a lot of healing has to happen, and it takes time. And I think of the black community in the United States, and I think, oh. As I heard, a great black civil rights worker who marched with Martin Luther King, he said, I'm in it for the long haul. To me, that's a bodhisattva vow. I'm in it for the long haul. To me, one of the, the essential ingredients that supports is hopefulness. To me, impoverishment is lack of hope. That the oppression is such that there is submission, compliance, uh, and nothing else. That way, the richness of expanding each other's view of the world, you know, our capacity to listen to each other, because we may have something that enriches, we may have something to say that enriches the group. What I want you to know. There's hopefulness in even making the statement.
the bodhisattva vow is not based on we've already got it figured out. To my mind, the beauty of the bodhisattva vow is that we don't have it all figured out. That we're probably never going to have it all figured out. But we're in it for the long haul. And then the other aspect of the bodhisattva vow for me is um, the inclusiveness of it. And everyone's included. Last year, I met with someone in Northern Ireland. And in Northern Ireland, it's a small community. It's about a million and a half people. So you can more or less get somebody's background and history before you meet with them. So I knew his background. He knew my background. I came from a staunch militant Catholic area. He came from a staunch militant Protestant area. And he was a leader in that. And at one point, they were violently oppressive of our neighborhood. And we talked about that. And then amazingly, as we continued to talk, we discovered that it's quite likely that both of our fathers worked for the same person when they were working. We're not as different as we think we are. And we talked about, and he's uh, a religious person. And we talked about the efficacy and the inclusiveness of compassion. And to me, that's part of our spiritual support. What supports the bodhisattva vow? How does a human being find the courage, the tenacity, the resilience, the compassion, the wisdom to engage it? Uh, To my mind, in the paramitas. in standing in a circle and chanting the loving-kindness meditation. In letting the little details of our life become rituals. In doing the inner work so that we are more capable of doing the 
interpersonal work. So my hope is that we learn something in going through, okay, how do, what's the impact of the pandemic? What's the impact on our formal practice? How we're here in this beautiful valley? What our schedule is going to be? what's the impact of being on the brink of the fire season and it's my hope that and I hope your hope too that that will be an opportunity for us to listen deeply to each other you know even though we might think poverty, oh, I know what poverty is. Do we know this person's history with it? Do, you know, do we know what it means to that particular person, that word, that phrase? I think we could ask each other, what does it mean to be on the brink of fire season? watch the appropriate response. The way my mind works with it is, we don't have to be able to answer those questions right now. We'll enter into it and discover what's appropriate. We'll, hopefully we'll learn about what needs to be considered But I think back of growing up in an impoverished environment. It was inner city, big families, small houses, narrow streets. And I think of being about seven or eight, listening to my mother talk to Mrs. Kennedy, who lived next door, McKenna, excuse me, Mrs. McKenna, who lived next door, talking about how maybe the woman who lived across the street three doors up might need some help because her daughter, her daughter is having a difficult time. Community. That's how you produce a Nobel Peace Prize winner. One of the women in the neighborhood started women's marches. Women's marches for peace. And it took fire just like that. 
want to be able to have a safe environment for our children. She got a Nobel Peace Prize for that thought. I want to end by reading you something from Nazi McMet. This is a lovely poem that I would recommend you read if you're so inclined. Last letter to my son. That's the poem, but I'm just going to pick a snippet from it. Don't live in the world. His son's name's Mehmet. Don't live in the world as if you're rent, you were renting or here only for the summer, but act as if it's your father's house. Believe in seeds, earth, the sea, and people above all. Love clouds, machines, books, but people above all. Grieve for the weathering branch, the dying star, the hurt animal, but feel for people above all. Rejoice in all the earth's blessings, darkness and light, the four seasons, but people above all. Mehmet, our Turkey, is one sweet country. And its people, its real people, are hardworking, serious, and brave, but frightfully poor. Its people are long-suffering, but it will turn out good. You and our people there will build communism, and you will see it with your eyes and touch it with your hands. What is it we are building? Can it start with how we relate to each other? Uh, can we be hopeless enough? Can we be hopeful enough? Courageous enough? Reckless enough? To say to each other, what I want you to know. Can something in that inform us and, and, and teach us what it is to listen to uh, everyone? If this practice that we're doing isn't utterly practical and relevant. Um, surely we need to look at that. Surely the challenge for us is to make it utterly relevant and practical. And I would add benevolent, compassionate, and skillful. It's quite a lot. But it's my hope that together we can do that. You know? 
that we will face this next challenge. that each of us will listen and each of us will feel empowered to speak. Not because we have all the answers, because each of us is an essential part of this community. was reading a piece by an African-American and she was saying because she was raised in the South I am the product of the South I was owned and raped in the South long, uh, challenging journey that's going to be. To listen to that, to take it in, to be informed by it, to respond to it. So tomorrow we'll meet our version of challenge. And hopefully, in doing that, it contributes to supporting everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfzc.org and click Giving.